0: All right, is the audio on now? Can you hear it in your... in your? Let me check if I can hear it here. Testing. Yes, we have sound. Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa ala rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Safina Society. Nothing but facts live stream. And we apologize for the delay. As uh, Ryan is out today. And... Um, uh, Ryan's out today, and we just had some technical difficulties getting on, but today we cover Nuruddin Azinki, and Habib, if you could possibly put on the um, the, the panel screen with Nuruddin Azinki, the title. Nuruddin Azinki, to me, is one of the greatest heroes in all of Islam, because I loved his style, the way of he did things, and he came up in such a time... In such a time of chaos. Very similar to our times. He came up to a, in a time where the crusaders, as Habib is going to put it up there, right, the Crusaders had taken over four major cities, okay, including Jerusalem, Edessa, Antioch. Okay. They've taken over four major cities along the coast of Shem. And the Muslims themselves were so pathetic, so pitiful at that time that the majority of their rulers were drunkards, people who drank, people who were inept, people who were incompetent. And people who would gladly side with the crusaders against one another. They would attack one another. They were fighting one another. And they were obadid dunya. They were worshippers of dunya. Amongst them came up a gangster. This gangster's name is Ahmad Adin Azenki. He's a Turk. Right. Ahmad Adin Ezenki is a Turk who is somebody who um, was extremely competent. Pious? No. Not pious at all. Not even close to pious. Okay. Not close to pious at all. But was he competent very competent okay and he had a philosophy that was very interesting for us to learn. His philosophy was the concept and the idea that in chaos you must remain on the attack or else you will be attacked okay that was the philosophy okay of don't put it in the corner put it go down to third corner uh, uh, no oh. Keep clicking those scenes, and there's a scene where it's set for you. On the left. On the left. Yeah. There's a scene. Where... Yeah, there. Imitate that. Stick it up there. Okay. Ahmad had a saying, there can only be one tyrant at one time. There's ever only one tyrant at once. Meaning, if I'm the tyrant, there will not be another tyrant. And he was a man who cannot be described by any means as pious. But he can very well be described as a king who, you're not going to want him as your king, right? You're, but if he is your king, you will not have problems. This is a man who kept no, tr- no word. He had no word. He was com- purely, the uh, idea with him was, the ends justify the means. I'll give you an example. He wanted to conquer. All he did, he spent his life... This is Game of Thrones stuff. Okay? This is total Game of Thrones stuff. And Habib's going to put up a map right now of the countries we're talking about and of the cities of Jerusalem. Uh, cities of Shem that he that, that that we're talking about. And I'd like to give you an overview in the general themes here. I don't go into the details like some of these history podcasts. There are some um, history podcasts that go into such detail. I wonder do you have a life seriously such detail that is the listeners no way like you ever you guys ever heard of the hardcore history podcast there is no way a human being can actually keep touch with the the amount of details keep that in your mind amount of details that this guy gives in the hardcore history podcast so I don't listen to it it's too much detail give me the general idea and the important themes that go through it. And the theme of Ahmad Adina Zengi's uh, rule was that in a state of chaos, okay, being constantly on the attack is the only way to survive. And he survived. Not a lot of people survived at that time. Rulers were up and down. It was completely like um, just there was no stability at all. The Latin kingdom, which is the crusader kingdom, they had stability. But nobody else. Except Imad-Dinazenki. Now, how did he come up? Imad-Dinazenki came up, his dad betrayed his king. So he was beheaded. So when you come up when you're ten years old and your dad gets beheaded, what kind of uh, view of the world do you have? That's the first thing. So whatever happens to people in their youth, it's oftentimes it amplifies as an adult. Because that's something that... That's his norm. That's his life. Right? So that's the first thing that happened to him that was like left to mark. He was then raised by a general. That is not his father. Not going to have the same kind of tender sympathy for him and care about him as a nice childhood. He raised him on militaristically. He raised him militaristically. And that's how they operated. Okay? So when it came time... For Imad al-Din to rule, he ruled, and he was on the uh, trying to take Damascus. That was his thing his entire life. Let me give you an example of what kind of betrayer this person was. He wanted to take over Aleppo at one time, Halab, which he successfully did. He he besieged it. When he besieged it and he couldn't succeed. He gave a promise to the leader. All of you come out, let's sign a pact. Okay. All of your, the captives that we have, they took captives, because some people live outside the city walls. We'll hand them over to you. But I need to talk to the leader face to face. They made him swear on the Quran. They made him swear that he would divorce all his wives. He did all that. He brought the shiuch to to uh, arbitrate. Now, mind you, he's attacking Muslims. He's, his Most of his career is attacking Muslims. As soon as the leader comes out to sign this pact, what does he do? Sluts his head. Sl- slits his neck. Cuts his head off. Kills all the captives. Takes over the city. He's a man that had zero principles, except the principle of the ends justify the means. Now, you look at this type of person, and you ask yourself a very simple question. Why is it that Allah Ta'ala gives success to this person? Because by all measures, he was successful. Okay? He was extremely successful as a worldly king. How did he end up getting killed? He ended up getting killed because he was drunk. And a slave a slave um, drank from his cup. So he pronounced a death penalty tomorrow on this slave. So the slave is afraid. It's a Christian slave. Till the middle of the night he killed him. That's how he died. Right? To show you that wasn't really exactly what we call a noble death but he did he his achievements are two in his life are two main achievements in his life number one he was the only stable kingdom in that world and it was strong and by conquering multiple cities the trade increased and improved the Tijara. And they became rich. Now the third thing, or the second major contribution, actually had nothing to do, nothing to do, with Islam, and the deen, and the motives of Islam, had purely to do with the motives of dunya, as was his track record. How could we say that? How can we judge the motive of another guy? Look at the guy's track record, Right? Look at how the guy lives. The guy's a drunk. The guy is. Um, can you stick the other one on, actually, to give you? Sorry for the hassle, but the uh, the one that has all the Crusader town, towns in it. The guy's motive not once showed any respect for the word of Allah, but he does something at the end of his life that triggers some belief in the hearts of Muslims. And what was that belief? He conquers a major castle, a major city and citadel and fortress and stronghold of the Crusaders, which is Edessa. When he conquers Edessa, it all of a sudden gives the Muslims some heart. And he sits thinking, the Muslims realize, we, just, we beat these guys. And you don't understand the, the the cowering, the cowardice, the fear that the Crusaders put into the heart of Muslims. And it was, what's his face, what's the guy's name, He co- one of the first biographers uh, of the Crusades. And I like to get it from the Christian perspective, because... When the Christians say something about their own events, right, then uh, it tells you something. What's his name? He's one of the major early, early authors. And, of course, they try to rebut him because he, by by essentially telling the truth, he ends up saying a lot of nice things about the Muslims. Uh, Stanley Lane pool is his name. And, of course, all the modern historians, they want to re- debunk him because to justify their job basically essentially they need to come up with some new idea and this guy's given the Muslims too much credit blah 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 so stanley lane pool okay uh, hamza hussein we're not talking about nuruddin we're talking about imaduddin his father okay all of this we're talking about imaduddin not nuruddin the father of nuruddin Imaduddin, you ask yourself, and I brought up the question. Well, you ask yourself, why does Allah give this tyrant such success? It's because Allah Taala is using him to lay the foundation for somebody else, and that is Nuruddin din right? So Imaduddin is your typical gangster. What's going on? That files, too big. file's too big. Screenshot it. Yeah, screenshot the. Uh, the important part of it that has the latin kingdom in it. yeah all that and then actually minimize a little bit click like control minus so the screen shrinks and then screenshot that so uh plan c says hopefully he's a hanafi this guy's barely a muslim i met a dean yeah he's a muslim of course but um when he tried to take over damascus what did the ruler of damascus do he sent an emissary to the crusaders themselves for help against Imad al-Din. so Imad al-Din's goal was to rule over mosul which is in iraq halab edessa and damascus if he could get these four corners, he could make like a shape. Okay? And that would be his territory. Now let's ask a question. Where is the link? There is a link here between Nur ad dins family and the future Salah ad dins family. We're not even close to Salah ad din yet. He's not even born yet. imad ad din as Zenki he's always he's an opportunist any chance he could he could attack he attacks so the Khalifa Khalifa dies in Baghdad at this point the Khalifa of Baghdad is nothing other than a figurehead right he's nothing other than a figurehead he dies but he has an army and the sons are thinking of who's going to be the next Khalifa. What does Ahmad al-Din do? He has the gall to take over the caliphate, And he tries, but he fails. He tries to go up to Iraq, Baghdad. He's in Mosul. He goes up to Baghdad. And he tries to take over Baghdad. Take over the caliphate itself. How, firstly, how did he even become a governor of Mosul? Because the Khalifa Mahmoud, I think it's like Mahmoud II. At the time, he was young. And he had a civil war within, the caliphs had a civil war within. And he banked on the right guy. That's what he did. He basically bet on the right guy. And he supported uh, the young Khalifa. He wins a civil war and as a reward, he gives him Mosul. That's how Ahmad al-Din becomes the Khalifa. So when that man, his ally in Iraq, Baghdad, the Khalifa, dies, Ahmad al-Din goes to try to take over the whole thing. But he fails. And he's actually on the run and they almost killed him. While he's on the run, shortly, a little bit outside of Baghdad, what happens? Another wily politician. Okay another wily politician all right we need to minimize it a bit more to get jerusalem right yeah who's this wily politician ayub najmuddin ayub ibn shadi okay hey noah are you here what number should i click we got a lot going on on the stream are you on the stream noah tell me what number should i click here uh Ayub ibn Shadi, alright, is the governor in Tikrit. A little suburb. It's a little suburb. What does he do? He sees the possibility, right, of what could happen here. And he gives him refuge. What does he see? He sees that this is a powerful guy who has a future. He's a powerful guy with a future. He gives him refuge. Okay? He gives him refuge. And when he gives him refuge, later on, that they become allies. Okay? We still don't have Jerusalem in that. Zoom out even more. So this guy is completely... Uh. These are all resourceful opportunistic people. And these two people, Ayyub ibn Najmuddin, Ayyub ibn Shadi, who is that? That's the father of salah al-Din. That's the future father of Salahideen. So who rises out of chaos? This is the what's important, not all these details, right? The the idea, the theme. Who rises out of chaos? The guys who are resourceful, and they're always on the attack. And they're making the ally allegiances that they need to make. Okay? That's what's important. That's what what matters. So, that's how Ayub ibn Shadi, okay, becomes uh, allied with Ahmad al-Din al that's how they become friends later on as a gift Imad al-Din gives Ayyub the city of Baalabak and that's where the city of Baalabak is where Salah is born Balabek is a nice posh cushy city in Sham and Salah grows up in absolute peace in that city Okay. din grows up and he becomes later on a um, a soldier and a prince. Okay. So Ahmad al-Din when he conquers Edessa. Well where is Edessa? Imagine Turkey. To the right of that is Edessa. That's where Edessa is the northernmost of the four principalities. Edessa, Antioch, Tripoli which is now Lebanon and Jerusalem so and when we say this and Habib is about to put it up right now he's got the map uh, when we say that it's a principality, what does it mean it means the city is the main thing that they control there's no, a bunch of farms and no man's land around it, but they end up managing to so they they, they, they benefit from the farms around it okay it's not like today where when you control something, you control every inch of it. Like France controls every inch of France. You can't you know, go build a house somewhere in a country today and, and disappear off the grid. I mean, It rarely happens. It's almost impossible to happen. But in the old days, they used to do that. So, the Crusades are now after Edessa. The conquest of Edessa. What did Imad do? He initiated again the fire of the Crusades, which led to the Second Crusade. Second Crusade. To take back Edessa. And that Crusade is a failure. It fails. Yeah, here, come take my phones if you need to. To the login. The Crusaders, they end up ruling for 88 years total. When they ruled, the Muslims were in complete... I would say disobedience outside of Islam, you know, in, not outside of Islam, but outside of what is needed to gain victory, in sins, in ma'asi. And Stanley Lane Poole is the one who said that when the Christians came in and went right to the heart of Jerusalem, the horses on the way to Masjid Omar were knee-deep in blood. It's Stanley Lane Poole who came up with that and people repeat that after. It's like a vivid image of how much killing they did. All this was actually spurred by Peter the Hermit. Peter the Hermit. He is one of the preachers of Christianity and he's the one who actually came up with the vision. Now you wonder where this massive thing called the Crusades came from. It was born in the mind and we would say that Allah put His will, here it is, in the mind of a certain preacher who, when we say Allah's will, Allah's will is of the good and the bad, right? Uh, but it, when it comes down to the earth, it has to come somewhere. Came into this mind of Peter the Hermit. He went around Europe preaching and he could fill this, a field with people to preach. Right? He could fill the field. So Peter the hermit did this and it caught on. right? And he doesn't realize what he lit. The, f- the flame that he lit was a fire that would take over the entire Islamic world, Shem, for over a century. But if you want the summary... There are 13 crusades, some big, some small. The crusaders won the first one. They lost all the rest. Right. There are a lot of crusades, some of them are insignificant. Okay. And the Muslims themselves out of Iraq, there were preachers. And there were khatibs. And there were imams. And some of them stand out over others. Okay. That Inspired the Muslims to return to jihad after the conquest of Edessa, which was not even done in the name of jihad. It was done in the name of dunya. But when they conquered it, when Ahmad al-Din conquered Edessa, they got like, "Whoa, we could we could win here." Now, Nur ad-Din is the son of al-Din. When al-Din comes in, dies, he divides up his kingdom. so I right? He gives Halab to Nuruddin. And he gives Mosul to his other son, Saifuddin. Nuruddin is literally described as one of the awliya Allah. Ibn al Athir says I have studied the careers of the rulers of the past, and I have only found five rulers of greater piety than Nur din In other words, the four Khalifas, of course Sayyidina Hassan is a Khalifa, but he doesn't rule for long. And Omar ibn Abdulaziz. There can only be five people who are mentioned to be close to the taqwa and deen of Nur din Now, the Western historians, they want to remember Remember the economics of academia. Economics always play a great role in everything. Economics of ac- academia is not just about telling the truth and uh, just about seeing what's going on in the world. Academia is also, you need to get a job. You need to get attention. Someone's got to pay you. Don't underestimate the, the role of having to be unique in academia. And having to come up with a new idea to get attention, to get yourself on uh, the radar of people, institutions that have money. So for you to say and read a history and say, yes, this history is correct, that doesn't get on anyone's radar. I'm not going into the intention of people, that's impossible, but we cannot. It's it's just impossible, impractical, and naïve to 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 not be aware that bringing a new idea contradicting the uh the known history or the 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 tradition that has been passed down in a field such as academia or whatever field you want to talk about gets attention and attention is needed to get you the job we can't discount that i think attention you have to get attention and always the question is are you getting it Righteously or wickedly. So later historians of the West, whom are the most dominant historians of our times because they they write the best history books, which is pretty much a shame, but that's what happens when your civilization's in decline. Another civilization rises up. They're the ones who have the time to study history to write the books, and that's why we're talking about their books. We're not talking about some Islamic historians' books. Muslim historian. Well, they want to put a uh, uh, play it that ad-Din he's a king like any other king. That's how they the Salahideen is a king like any other king. They want to put it like that. But even them, this is a good. I like this book. I read it a long time ago. Salahideen by P. H. Newby. I haven't read it again. I probably may not like it the second time I read it. But who knows? But they cannot deny the personal piety that was on display of these individuals. There is a great uh, amount of evidence showing the personal piety of Nur ad How he lived. He was austere. Okay, let's put the map up, Brian. We can put it up now that we have it up. Nur ad was austere. He was a Zahid. He was a Hanafi. And it is said that the method that was promulgated were three in his time and in his city. Take a seat, Habib, you can join the podcast. And Yahya, too, take a seat, because Yahya just came back from Jamaat, and he'll tell us about it. Youth Jamaat. Yeah, youth Jamaat. If people don't know what Jamaat is, it's mainly, essentially, um, when they um, go for tablique. Um. It's, a, it's basically a nice trip for the youth. Could you see why? It, get the AC to pump out cold air. It's just pull. Is it so hot? That's why the internet's slow. Everything's slow. What's? It? By the way, we got a major scorcher today. How hot was it outside? Like 92? Huh? It should be getting cold. It's so hot that the machine can't work. It's too hard. My, the internet's slow. Nothing's working. Uh, all the grass everywhere, like my poor the poor, some of our tenants here in the house, they don't work they're grass cutters, there's no work everyone's grass is dead right, so when you look at what uh Nuruddin, how he lived the poetry is literature that's there you can't uh, invent it wasn't invented later it was there it's clearly poetry praising him as a man of piety for us as muslims this is the key because our, our main belief is that our success comes from taqwa from sakina. yet at the same time you have to be a ga- you have to have some gamesmanship you have to be a gangster in your profession and nuruddin was and they use that to try to show that he's just a man of dunya like everybody else But no, you have to be somebody who strengthens. If you're a king, you don't just spread the deen. You solidify your own power. You have to. Or else you won't survive. So we take it that when he does that, and he does solidify his own power, and sometimes he is attacking other Muslims. But when he attacks other Muslims, it's always with a green light from a faqih that this is for the... Benefit of the of the Ummah, like what, for example? Damascus was tied with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is who? The Crusaders. And at this point, Jerusalem was ruled by Baldwin the Okay, hey, look up a, if there's a picture of Baldwin the Okay, now Baldwin the Third, is a great king. He's an excellent king and when your people have an excellent king you know that allah has willed stability for you when a fool takes over which is going to happen later on a fool takes over then you know that allah has willed the demise what's the proof of that the quran says we either aradna bi mutrafiha if we have a specific will in other words to bring down a nation we bring up the fools mutrafiha means the people who, who care about the details or about the superficials, the atraf, the edges, or the people who are on the edge of intellect as opposed to on the, the core of things. mutrafia, kufiya, They mess it up. فَفَسَقُوا means they destroy everything. They ruin everything. That's so why you look at a guy like Putin, say what you want about his morals. Say whatever you want. You want to call him evil, the de- I'm fine with all that. You cannot say he's incompetent. Nobody could rule these all ol- oligarchs for how many years he ruling? Twenty years now. Nobody could rule for that long and be incompetent. He's not a stupid guy, which is why Russia is something to be called to be reckoned with. Right. So din his eye is on Damascus, but he does not break any trusts. And he is at one point attacked he's attacked by a new wave of crusaders he has no choice but to call upon Nur ad-Din Nur ad-Din comes from Aleppo and he saves Damascus and then he doesn't even spend the night because he, he wants to show him I have no ill will towards you so he leaves that king dies of Damascus these are all like little kings The king dies of Damascus. Then ad-Din realized a weak king comes in. There's no pact between that king. So back in the old days you had pacts between kings not between nations. So there's no pact on dishonor. He realized if we leave this king there the crusaders are going to take it. So he comes in and he takes Damascus. Once he takes Damascus that's where everything turns. Because Damascus is a powerful city. And by the way Another sign of the barakah of this conquest of Damascus. It's a conquest. It's a political takeover. That doesn't mean it's not blessed. People imagine piety to be like being a lamb, like this Christian version of piety. You're never political. You're just a lamb. You're like a Quaker. All that stuff. All right? The Quakers could be Quakers because no one tried to conquer Pennsylvania. Nobody wants it. Right? Back in the day, the Quakers... What's his name? Who was it, the founder of Pennsylvania? Right, William Penn. All right, Bill Penn. He's a Quaker, right? No violence. All everything should be nice and good. I love it. It's wonderful. Until someone tries to conquer you, right? Then let's talk. Let's see your philosophy. Then, all right. So you could be all peaceful when you're way out there in the middle of nowhere and nobody cares about your country. But as soon as people care, you can't be this this Quaker, all peace loving, right? So. It is a conquest, but it's blessed. And the sign of it's being blessed is that the elite and the common call for Nur ad-Din to come and take over. When they realize the new king is weak, he can't do anything. We don't trust him. We trust you. And in the Sharia, what is rule? Rule for us is by a king who is asked to rule. That's the correct and the pure. That's, one, that's the purest form of rule is when the elite and the common but most importantly, the elite who speak for the common, the interests of the common folk, the heads of the tribes and the heads of the different groups. Of, if there are no tribes, and there are interest groups. There are groups, right? Demographics, they call for you to lead. And they put the burden of leading on your shoulder. And once that happens, that's the blessed rule. And Nur ad-Din's rule was extremely blessed. He filled the Masajid with classes. And the biggest theme was jihad. Just every day, non-stop talk about war against the Crusaders, taking back one city at a time. And Nuruddin's gets you the uh, Nuruddin's um, smitus. His his battles are many. Nuruddin's battles are many. Let's take a look at some of them. Now, here's just one of the signs that even the non-Muslims had to recognize the, no- the nobility of these rulers. When Baldwin III died, okay, this, this is a crusader enemy, right? Everyone said, Nur this is your chance. He said, no. He said, when a prince like that, who knows how to lead his people, competent in all facets of the field of monarchy and governance and rule. When he dies, we give them respect. I'm not gonna take advantage. Why? Because he was not like some of the other rulers that came who were fools. There was there were rulers who were fools who deserved what they got. But Baldwin the Third and from his lineage from Baldwin the Third was somebody that he respected. And he refused to attack Jerusalem after Baldwin III. He respected them. Because when you're, when you're a king, when you're a gangster, and you meet another gangster, right? When I say gangster, I mean you're living in a world of chaos, right? It's not, there's no order in the old world. If you have power, you attack. You think there's order now? We imagine, yeah, there's red lights, green lights. That's for us. We imagine that. But in the grand scheme of global power, there's no order, right? You have a chance to take something. You have to take it. Okay. so he respected them and he let them bring on the next king okay. and there was nothing left in Syria though so the eye of he didn't have the power to go to Jerusalem the eye of Nodadin was to corner the, was to completely corner the crusaders how do you do that? Syria is completely under his control now In the map, under the green kingdom of Jerusalem, go a little southwest, that's Egypt. Egypt is ruled by the Fatimid Shia. Those yellow, blue, red, and green countries there are the crusaders from Europe. The French, basically. You see how how long the French hatred of Islam comes from? From 1100s, right? So grandfather from grandson for... Over a millennium they've been hating Islam. Okay, so you wonder where that hatred comes from? It's part of their history. Most of what, what do we call in, in, in Arabic? What do we call a foreigner? Call him a Frangi, which means Frenchman. Because these were the the Crusaders were mostly French. Right? And the pap- papacy was in France. So that's why basically the, the the crusader history, the history of between Muslims and Europeans is essentially the French more than anybody else. That's why their hatred for Islam is run so deep. Now, even as atheists, they've sloughed off Christianity, but they've kept the hatred of Islam. Well, they hate all religions now. So, if he can get Egypt, that's the key. If he can conquer Egypt, then he could have... Two major armies, and completely jam Jerusalem from both sides. Makes sense, right? Jam them from both sides. And this happens. It happens when another crusade comes along, and these crusaders, what do they do? Well, they're not dumb either. They realize, we're in trouble. If Nur ad-Din gets his hands on Egypt, we're in big trouble. So what do they have to do? They gotta take Egypt first. So they try to take Egypt first. Okay? And when the crusaders come to take Egypt, the Fatimid king reluctantly he phones Nordin. I don't know how they used to do it back in the old days. Send a, a horseman, right? Send a pigeon. Send a falcon, right? Fire a smokestack. But they send an emissary over to Nur ad-Din and reluctantly asked for help. So Nur ad-Din sends who? His brother. Okay. And he sends the assistant to his brother. Is whom at this time? Salah din Now keep in mind, Yusuf ibn Ayyub, Salah din he's just a soldier like anybody else. But he's a competent soldier. And he has a position of privilege with the king, with with ad because Nur ad-Din inherited the loyalty of his father. Remember, Salah ad-Din's father, Ayyub, is owed a favor by Ahmed. So Nur ad-Din's dad was basically running for his life. Salah ad-Din's dad took him in, in Crete, Iraq. So he owes him a favor for life. So he set him up nice and cushy in Syria. And Salah ad-Din grows up there, and their family friends. So, Nur ad-Din takes him in as he's a, a, a soldier like any other soldier and, a gener- and he rises up the, the ranks, but he has a special spot. So, Nur ad-Din's brother now is not exactly Mr. Dean, right? He's blind in one eye, he's corpulent, he's foul mouthed, right? But he's competent. And Nur ad-Din sends him and Salah ad-Din to Egypt to push back the crusaders and the, the the mission is we're not at war with the fatimids push back the crusaders and come right back that's the goal and he does an amazing job and i had a, i had a video on it in the past but i took it down of you could literally make a movie on the honestly this whole period this whole century is game of thrones but this one attack where he comes in with a small troop and he's trapped in a certain area. The, the brother of Nur ad-Din, Shirku, his name is. Shirku. And he uh, goes down to South Egypt and he attacks the capital. So he, he's a guy who's very vulnerable against the Crusaders. The Crusaders are making a siege on the capital. When he comes in, he's stopped. Right? So... In order to busy them, he's able to get a small contingent of his soldiers down to the southern Egypt, recruit some Sunnis from there, go up attack the capital, right, and distract the crusaders. He's a brilliant warrior, and point being, he gets the job done. Now when he gets the job done, and he vanquishes the crusaders, the crusaders leave. Now, what do you think they do after war, after an like an, uh, operation like that is over? They have to rest a little bit. As they're resting, the Fatimid king invites him over. Right? They come to the palace. right? They're eating. Shirku, like his brother, like his father, he's got an eye. He's resourceful. He's looking around. He's looking around at The palace. It's not well kept. He's looking around at the soldiers. This is not a scary army. He's looking at the king. He's like 14 years old. And immediately on the spot decides, let's take it. This was not his order, but he knew that this is a great opportunity. So he takes it. He goes back rallies his troops, they surround the castle of the king, of the Fatimid king, and they take over. That was it. No, no, nothing. There was no war, nothing. Very quickly, took over. And he's so happy, because this was ad-Din's goal. And if you have Syria, and you have Egypt, you will have. What happened in, in the 60s? When Israel came about. Israel, uh, uh, Syria, and Egypt realized, if we can make a pact together, we could sandwich Israel and we could take over. And they made a pact, but they, they, were, they were not upon Dean. And I talked to, I heard lectures, and I met some people who were in that army, Egypt, on the Egypt side. And I heard them saying that the night before the army, the Egyptian soldiers were passing around pornographic magazines. So he knew we're not winning this war. And they didn't, right? The Egyptians didn't. And the Syrian pact Was not something based upon taqwa The way Nur ad-Din established it So Allah does not give Muslims victory If they're not on taqwa right? Unless it's paving the way for something else So And victory against the kuffar we should say Victory against one another Okay maybe that's something else But When he takes over he can't, He's besides himself He can't believe it So he sends a letter To Nur ad Egypt is ours They can't believe it They're like the goal has been we arrived at it, right? Now, Shirku we said is not Mr. Piety. What does he do? There are two castles in Egypt. He alternates partying. One night here, one night there, one night here, one night there. For two weeks he parties. He ate so much that the doctors say his stomach burst from how much he ate. And he died. Right then and there. So what does he do when he died? He, he says to his number two, Yusuf, who is Salah al Hey, you, the most loyal person to Nududdin that we know, we're family friends, guess what, you're king. You're king of Egypt. He's like, what? Now immediately who comes down? Immediately, his dad. Now remember who his dad is. His dad's loyalty is to himself. His dad saved Nur dad, knowing this is a political bargaining chip I can use later on. And that allowed, when Ahmedine ad became successful, then Nur ad-Din became successful, for him to have a nice posh position in the monarchy. Now his son has Egypt. You think a 50-year veteran of politics is just going to tell him follow orders and submit Egypt back to Nududdin? He says, no. This is our turn now. We're kings. So, Yusuf, Salah is young at this point, very young, and he doesn't really have a plan. His father comes in and tutors him. And he says, you write a letter immediately to Nududdin. And you tell him everything he wants to hear. And you give him the most polite You address him in the most polite fashion possible. But you don't give up an inch. You do not give up one inch of Egypt, and you don't go back. And every time he calls you back, and every time he gives you an order, you reply immediately with the most polite reply possible. But you don't give him an inch and start consolidating this kingdom. We, the Ayyubids, it's our turn now. And he never gives Egypt to Nur ad-Din. So, the, the Zengi Empire, finally, the moment it reaches its climax, it doesn't get it. Right? On top of that, what happens? So, Yusuf, now, he's ruling Egypt. He's consolidating Egypt. He's traveling around. Okay? The Monopoly board of the old world. Consolidating, strengthening, pushing off enemies. Nuruddin says, Now it's time, meet me in Jerusalem, let's fight. He ignores him. And he avoids Nuruddin. How long can I keep avoiding him? This is not like practical or sustainable. And yet Allah ta'ala comes with the verdict. You know what happens? Nuruddin gets a virus in his throat, severe tonsillitis, and he dies young. That's it. And who are his sons? He only has like a 15 year old son. So what does Salah din do? His father walks in. You write the longest ode of respect and honor and then you go and you conquer Syria. And they go in and the people of Syria see the troops of Salah din They know him. He's one of their own. So they don't view this as a nasty takeover. And Salah takes over Syria. And that's how Salahideen and Nudiddin Salah Nudiddin's vision of a Syria-Egypt pact to put the crusaders between two pincers like this ends up being the destiny of the Ayyubids of Salahideen. Now was there a selfish motive by the father of Salah al-Din? Was the father of Salah al-Din a corrupt tyrant? No. Was he a, a foxy politician? Yes. He was a fox. There's no doubt about it. And he saw a chance for his family to have a place in history, and they got it, right? And so a pious person like Salah al-Din, well, at the same time, I guess you have to listen to your father, Right? So Allah has forced him almost. It's almost as if Allah jammed him. Well, you got to listen to your father. Right? Obey your father. So it came to Salah al-Din in that respect. So, that's the summary of Nuruddin, al Salah al-Din. If we want to talk about Deen and aqeedah, then both of them were extremely pious. They were Ashairah. They promoted the Ashari school of Aqidah. That Was that the? That was a big portion of it. There's something called al-akida salahiya. Why is that? It's because there was a lot of Shiism in the air at the time. A lot of Shiism, right? And so they had to combat that. How else did Salahuddin combat this? He said, "We need all the strength of all the madhabs." And he's the, one of the first, if not the first. I don't think Nizam and mulk did this in the Ghazadi's time. He was one of the first to call upon the leaders of all the madhhabs and have them all teach in one mosque. In what's called a four-iwan mosque. Which is basically, imagine a big courtyard and then a huge nave, a roofed area. Like an etched in imagine like a plus sign essentially. The, the middle of the plus sign is open air with a big fountain for wudu. And each of the legs of the plus sign, the limbs, is like a domed, uh, hollow area. And there, each madhab has one. And le- the, each madhab is assigned the leadership from their own that manages it. Why? Because we need all hands on deck to combat the Shi'ism that's in the air. Shi'ism was a thing of the Arabs in the past. It wasn't a Persian thing, right? It became Persian later. But it was an Arab issue. They were fighting within. And so the Fatimids were Arabs who had established themselves in Egypt and Salah din in order to combat this. So he did have a keen eye on theology. Salah din he believed that victory is by Ibadah and sakina. One of the proofs of that is that he assigned a sheikh to remind the people of piety. All he was supposed to do is worship Allah day and night and give a couple speeches to the troops. Every troops are divided into companies. Every company had one. Right? Every, and, and the sheikh of all of them right, was um, Ibn Qudama. Ibn Qudama at that time was the sheikh who was assigned, uh, one of the assignments he had, was to be in the army. Give lectures on the laws of fiqh related to war and conquest, so that our soldiers can obey them. Right? And that was his job. For a period of time. The great Ibn Qudam al-Maqdisi. Alright? So that's the idea and the concept of how Allah's will, yeah, dean came up with something. All right. Yet at the same time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had a different plan And palace, uh, Syria and Egypt As the jam of uh, the crusaders Was the fate and the destiny Of Salahuddin Yusuf Ibn Ayyub Ibn Shadi And that led to the Ayyubid dynasty okay, Which uh, has its own history And in the future lessons inshallah We'll talk about the basic history of how Salah al-Din conquers the crusaders now we talked about their deen and their aqidah let's talk about their personalities Nur al-Din and Salah al-Din, two opposite personalities Nur al-Din grew up in a time that's not stable there's wolves and foxes all over the place and we have to put a thousand percent effort in order to get this he was tough. It was very much like Sayyidina Dawood and Suleyman. He was extremely tough. He was extremely strong. Right? Salahuddin came up in luxury. He came up in the shadow. In the shadow of stability, the stability of Nuruddin. Right? He felt that you don't have to cut off necks. We're we're powerful enough to forgive. That's the difference. Nur ad-Din came up in a time where if you want to survive, you got to cut necks. But Salah ad-Din came up in a time where he felt we're powerful enough, we can forgive. So you could say that Nur ad-Din was the personality of cutting off necks in a righteous way. Like he didn't, he was not a tyrant. Uh, He didn't cut off necks. When I say cut off necks, it's like, Hyperbole for not messing around. Not letting your enemies hang around. Salah al felt, we're so strong. Let's leave a good impression. You never know where it's going to go. And he forgave so much. He forgave some of these crusaders so much that his sons and his courtiers blamed him. SubhanAllah. They blamed him. Jeep. Nuruddin, let me give you an example of Nuruddin's taqwa and his piety. He never made a major decision except by praying Istikhara in, in the middle of the night. And one of these decisions was that there was a raid upon one of his cities by a crusader group, and the Muslims captured the uh, they captured the uh, the king, the head of that crusade. So they've ransomed him for a ton of money. A lot of money to ransom him back. Second time, did began. Took him, ransomed him for a ton of money. Okay. Third time, they said, Nuruddin, enough. Kill him. He said, yeah, we're going to kill him in the morning. I just have, we won't kill him today, because I have to do istikhara. He does istikhara. In his istikhara, yeah, he, firstly, the, the Prophet I said said the Muslim is not bit by the same snake twice or the same scorpion twice you don't fall on the same scorpion hole two times that means, but this is the third time now They definitely got to kill this guy he prays the Sikhara, and this time he sees the Prophet Sallallahu said Prophet ﷺ says Nuruddin double the ransom and let him go he wakes up and he knows his courtiers, his ministers, his generals, they're not going to accept this. So he goes and he negotiates it himself before the light comes up. When they wake up at Fajr, they knew what happened. And he said, doubled the ransom and let him go. Right? They said, Are you serious? For the third time. Right? He said, this is what the Messenger of Allah told me and I'm going to trust the Messenger of Allah. Before Dhuhr, as they're spraying Dhuhr, announcement came in. His horse fell, the guy dies. You didn't have to kill him and you got the money. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Just to show you that the, the, the piety that Muslims have today, when you see a pious person, that's the same piety that these kings have. We imagine if you're king, you can't have that piety. You can't be worrying about salah, du'a, the subtleties of prayer. Now they had that. That's how they operated. At the end of Salahideen's life, which we haven't talked about yet, his son was a is a businessman, right? Salahideen's son. And al his the son, he used to tell uh, he used to tell him, uh, you know, father the era of jihad is over. It's not the era of jihad anymore. So even this idea of like when father and son and there's a new generation comes up and we feel that that's only a new thing, that happened in the past too. All right? So a new generation and the son was like, oh, enough with this jihad stuff. Let's, let's do business with these guys. Like they're not a threat anymore. The crusaders are not a threat. People don't know. Salahideen's son made a business deal where he gave the keys to Jerusalem back to the Christians, right? It's just that they, they had no impact, right? They had no army. They was just like symbolic, but he was a man of Tejada. And people don't know that. So anyway, let's stop here. That gives you a good idea, and my goal here with these is essentially to give people a good idea of the history without necessarily going into the details that you'll never remember anyway. Uh, We can go back to the full screen and now start taking your questions and your comments as we scorch in a day that is 92 degrees today outside uh, where the uh, air conditioner is basically struggling to survive. Huh? it It is definitely not blowing out any cold air. No, no cold air. Who? Yeah, is there turbo charge on this AC? Oh, nice. There's turbo charge like a video game. All right. uh, Yeah, here, read us some of the comments and questions here while I... uh... No, the Syrians are Ashari. I don't know if at that time, but he's described as an Ashari.
1: Was the was giving the keys to Jerusalem only symbolic of an actual handover?
0: Yeah, it was sort of like a symbolic type of handover that was. Uh, there was no real threat, or another, no change of life, but. Um,
1: um, yeah. With his was his father right for doing what he did to.
0: Nuruddin? Allahu Alam. Yeah. Allahu Akbar. NYU MSA, would you come for a halakha at NYU one day? I'm welcome at NYU. I'll go. I'll go anywhere, right? If I'm welcome there, because it's close. It's only forty five minutes away from here. Why not? I didn't know I would be welcome at NYU. What else we got? Iqra. Should we with the Um last I checked, like we don't have much authority, right? We don't have much authority to be honest. But um, my whole philosophy is that the Quran mandates to us to clarify the Deen. The marbles fall where they fall, right? Don't muddy the beautiful waters of your beliefs and your deen. That's what bothers me. Am I out for an attack on people? Not necessarily, unless they attack me, right? But I like to I uh, you love the deen so much when you experience it. The last thing you want is someone muddying the waters with some ideas that aren't accepted. And and we have a history. We know what our deen is. There's not going to be any new discoveries in aqidah. right? So, that's my take and that's my approach to things and I work in a masjid unlike some people work in universities right I work in a masjid that masjid it's I wouldn't say I work but I say my place of where I do my dawah work is a masjid the people there they bring their kids they bring their families right you need to bring them a simple predictable and consistent message otherwise just walk out confused right you can't build on some wishy-washy stuff. And if you want to look at it, I challenge you, go look at the wishy-washy operations and show me what they've produced in 10 years. I guarantee you, maybe it'll be people who are like activisty, but will it be someone with a sound, solid understanding of the deen that could now lead the halakha, teach kids, teach the next generation, move up? The answer is no. And my colleague and the director of our masjid, he did a study. You know, his own observation study. He said there's two types of masjid. There's one type of masjid where it's oriented on a a principle, a belief system. Right? It's oriented around that. There's another type of masjid that is oriented on like generalism of Islam. And there's no one belief system that they're espousing. And he says that in the short run, the, the latter, the one that's general and just accepts everyone and everyone's welcome like a United States version uh, of a mosque. Anyone can come in and do your thing. In the short run, it looks more impressive because they got a lot of people and they do a lot of things and the governor goes there, blah, blah, blah. But in the long run, it's just ineptitude. It's the, they don't produce anything of value. And people leave when they really want Dean. Yet the masajid that are based upon a principle and a methodology and a In the short run, many people feel like they, they, they're not welcome there. Or because it's not giving them the, the pizza that they want. Right? It's not giving them the food and the ideas that they want. It's saying ideas that they don't like. So they leave. In the short run. But in the long run, these these people coalesce, they have unity. They have a curriculum that they could pass on, and they do pass it on, and they grow and they flower out of that, and that's the methodology that I go by, and that's why I don't like to mince words and mess around in terms of matters of deen Prince Matthew, Matthew, may Allah Ta'ala make you king instead of prince, because that's I guess your next step. What else?
1: During the time of Nuruddin and so. Was there was there a Salafi population during
0: the time of Nur ad and Salah Hanabila, you mean? Yes, there were Hambaris. There were Hanbalis. Ibn Qudama was there in Damascus in the time of Salah din If anyone wants to support this podcast, you go to patreon.com backslash Safina Society. Again, that is patreon.com backslash Safina Society. All of your support is extremely appreciated. And we're only able to put this together by the thank, uh, with gratitude to Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then to the people who who financially put their weight behind the nothing but facts live stream. People are
1: asking if they can ask any
0: questions? You can ask any question, yeah. Until we basically all if you start seeing that we're all red in the face and completely fried because the poor AC cannot even keep up with this heat wave. Yeah. Turbo's working? Good. Maybe. Hopefully. You
1: feel
0: that Yes. <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, you seem to be like sturdy against all temperatures, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> like in the cold, he does hardly wears a jacket. In the heat, he's not <laughs> sweating. Um, I heard Dr. Omar saying that Salah al-Din was the student of Abdul Qadr al I don't know if they ever met, to be honest, but I do know that Ibn Qudama was the student of Abdul Qadr al in fiqh. And he was in the time of Nuruddin uh, uh din uh, uh, Someone asked, yes. what does like,
1: Shadi mean? Singer.
0: Singer. Munshid, basically. Or someone who speaks well, basically. Uh, Muhammad says, One of Sun Tzu's governing principle is the moral law, where you have people on your side, so that's an interesting perspective on what is the blessed rule. Sorry, the moral law. Hey, look up Sun Tzu's moral law and read it to us. Yeah, Sun Tzu, Art of War. Everyone reads that to try to be like whatever, you know. Sun Tzu. Tzu. He's got some good principles there. How do we build up the habit of praying? How do we build up the habit of praying no by only praying? One nafila and then remaining consistent on that for a couple months. Then praying another one. Remain consistent on it. Put the pull up, pull up the mic to your mouth and, and read us this principle.
1: The first one is, uh, can you hear me?
0: Yeah.
1: When all without fighting?
0: No, the moral. the moral, moral code. Meanwhile, Layli says, what is the significance of Abdul Qadir Jilani? My father is very passionate about him. He is one of the uh, great awliya of Islamic history, meaning that he's one of those who are extremely pious and who, whose piety has impacted millions of people over the centuries. And his uh, path in spirituality is followed by Many, many people in North in in West Africa, in the subcontinent, so many places. Shaken up, funny, nice uh, name there, Sheikh, but in up. Shaken up says, Assalamu alaikum, just came in. These history lessons every Thursdays. Every Thursday is stories of the awliya, which does involve some history too. Stories of the awliya. Uh, games with dice are between haram and makruh. To play games with dice, yeah. Misorganized chaos. Um, you know what? I'm lucking these names to be honest with you. Huh, what is the moral code that he's talking about here? Asra, sister of Harris, is here. I'm starting law school. Says H. Baz. I'm gonna miss this live stream. alhamdulillah for a hundred days. And 100 episodes So H-Baz May Allah Ta'ala protect you May Allah Ta'ala keep you on the right path And benefit some uh, Benefit You know from your law school Be able to give benefit to the Ummah afterwards And to yourself And to your own pocketbook Uh, Glitters If we fall in love with someone Can we say Allah put that love in our heart Allah put The love in your heart But that does not necessarily mean That because everything goes back to the creator. So y- you cannot judge that that's something that Allah is saying is-, is good for you too. You have to judge that by the sharia. That's how I would say. You judge it by the sharia.
1: What's
0: my view on street dawah? Not very favorable to be honest. Yeah, I find it to be awkward. Sense. Sense. Street Dawa, you open a, a table on the street and you just talk, you just talk to people uh, like they that. Do
1: that in, uh, England,
0: no? I can't say I'm against it, but I can't say that I'm... It seems to me that it's... Uh, I think Dawa, to me, is, is showing your entire community's strength and benefit to other communities. So should we organize? Yeah. Like, for example, Dawa, for us, is establishing... Here in New Brunswick Decades Of stability and benefit To the greater New Brunswick community And yes Is preaching part of it? Of course it is Right? But the bedrock is some street credibility And where do I get that? The Prophet wasallam did not come Out of a vacuum to preach to his people He came After his grandfather Was known as the savior of his people so it's imp- extremely important to have like some street credibility. All right. Read for me. Because my phone's not uploading. The Wi-Fi is, uh, it's so overloaded because yeah. of the heat. I didn't know that Wi-Fi was affected by heat. But we're going to have to stop before literally we get sick and I'm already sick, by the way. The
1: internet's not
0: working. Huh? The internet's not working. Your internet's not working either. Yeah. Go. Iqra.
1: Someone said, is it permissible to wear pants folded if they go below your ankle,
0: below the ankles? The, wear- the pants, I don't believe, is uh, related to the ankles matter because the ankle, going below the ankle, the Prophet and specified the izar. That's what? The izar. Yes, izar is the waist strap or the thobe. It extends to the thobe. And why do I say that? Because there was a context to that hadith. The ancient times... The rich and elite were dragging izars. It was a thing. Yeah. To show you're a rich elite. Is it a thing today that you're cool or you're rich because your pant goes behind the ankle? And the Prophet ﷺ told Sayyidina Abu Bakr, your izar may slip down because you're thin, but you don't do it out of arrogance. So the Prophet gave us a illa the cause of that prohibition, which is if you're doing it out of arrogance. Today, any old regular pant goes under the ankle. A little bit under the ankle because that's just the... That's what a pant is. So, it doesn't really extend to the pant uh, if if you ask me about that. Sometimes. And not just me, many. I've seen many, 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 many of the ulama come visit western countries and they wear pants. Or they're in their own countries. They wear pants. The pant goes beyond the ankle. Like a little bit. It's not... So it's not something that is but when they wear a thob or an izar it's above the ankle yes, so that's a difference we'll take one more be- before we explode from heat so,
1: someone said a question how do you how should you interact if you uh, around those who don't like dislike you or you don't have the best relationship
0: with if if someone doesn't like me I try to get out of the room I try, to, I, I try not to be in the same presence as this person. Why bother myself? Explain to me, give me one reason why I have to. Now, if they're family, I can still get out of the room. Right? They come in, I'm like, oh, why come slam? Let me just uh, step outside for a second. I'll be right back. I will be right back. Maybe in an hour. Maybe in 20 minutes. I leave the room. I don't play games anymore. I'm, I'm too old for that. Right? When I was young... I may have been forced. I may not know how to deal with things. But now I just cut the snake from that. Don't, we don't like each other. Why fake it? Right? I just leave the room. I'm not dealing with you. I'm not hating on you. Right? I'm not faking smiles with you. Just, well, I'll give you one fake smile. as That's it. Right? Then that's it. I'm leaving the room. I don't bother. You don't answer the phone. You don't ever answer my texts. When I say something, you mock and you roll your eyes. I'm done with you. Essentially,
1: you don't see anything good
0: out of it, So, there's nothing good coming out of yeah, this. And I'm not your savior. I don't need to. I don't need. To, you don't need me. I don't need you. Right? Why bother? Life is too short. But we do have to temper this a little bit. Why? Because if every time a person says, "Hey, someone in, is is giving me grief," I cut, I just cut them off. You're going to be a selfish, right? Like. Uh, silo onto your own hmm. island, onto your own. So, you have to do you do have to temper it a little bit.
1: It's like levels.
0: There are levels of it. Yeah. yeah, there are levels of it. So, if that person uh, is part of your family, then I think that there should be always a bridge there because the opposite extreme is uh, oh, you're giving me a hard time to cut you off. Give me a hard time to cut you off. Where's your patience? Maybe you actually are wrong, right? Maybe you're wrong. Maybe your personality does need fixing. So you do have to temper it a little bit and not always use that so quickly with everybody. You just become a massive egomaniac after a while. Because as soon as anyone says anything to you, you just cut them off. So you have to uh, keep that in mind too. Someone
1: said, are you supposed to forgive and
0: forget? Like they, they tig- I forgive you. I forget you, but I don't have to <laughs> hang out with you, right? You're not supposed to forgive and forget. You're not obligated to forgive and forget. Who told you, we're not Christians here. No, if I want justice, I could get justice. I have people, I'm waiting for the justice. When I see the justice in front of me on al Qiyamah and I enjoy it, then I'll forgive you. Right? Say, okay, Khalas, uh, uh, oh, angels, take, give, let them have their hasanats back. Right? But maybe I'll need those hasanats. I'm not giving away value, right, for free. Let's see if I need those hasanats on the day of judgment, right? First. So, forgiveness is often misunderstood by the weak. It's a cover of the weak. This is one of the things that Nietzsche said that was actually correct. And I'm not quoting it because Nietzsche said it. He just made the observation that everyone else makes. You have no ability to get justice. So you let it go and call it forgiveness. You're not virtuous. Forgiveness is when the guy, he's on the, what did the French call that thing? Uh, His head is on, on the guillotine. Then you forgive him. That's forgiveness. His head's on the guillotine, right? You enjoy the view. Then you said, "Okay, I forgive now. I forgive." you. But you, the guy doesn't go uh, uh, rape your wife, kill your kids, kill your mom, run away, and then you say, "I forgive him." You didn't forgive him. You're just too weak to get justice. So don't confuse forgiveness with being too weak to get justice, right? Subhanallah I said rape your wife rape your mom and the and the and the bots are here already <laughs> Like seriously it's unbelievable the speed by which the bots yeah. come right Keywords unbelievable Subhanallah I mean Google's got to do something about this yeah. All right folks I really wish we could stay a little longer Jazakumullahu khairan Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk inna <inaudible> al insana la fi khusr illa alladhina amanu Amelus الصَّالِحَاتِ Ve بِالْحَقِّ bil بِالصَّبْرِ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ bil اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ <Sessizlik>